Hey, this is Sean Leary, and welcome back to QC Uncuts, your source for unedited, uncensored, untamed conversation with local newsmakers. And today, my guest is a longtime friend of mine, one of my good friends, and somebody who I very much respect in the local art scene, an extremely talented individual, and... Um, I'm very happy to have him as a guest on the show. I'm talking about Carrie Tucker, who uh, is with Einstein's sister. He is a guitar player and a vocalist and one of the primary songwriters with Einstein's sister, who, in my opinion, are one of the best bands to ever come out of the Quad Cities. And um, they've got some awesome news that they want to share with us. And I'm very happy to have you on the show, Carrie. Thank you so much for finally making time to be on my podcast. Sure, you bet, John. Glad to, glad to do it. Um, so, why don't we just start off with, you know, the elephant in the room and tell everybody about what's going on with you guys. Okay. Well, uh, after almost a 20-year absence of not recording, we've decided to do a... Well, we did, we did a band reunion a couple years ago when we reissued learning curves on vinyl mm-hmm. and that has now led to a studio reunion and we have, are going to be reissue or releasing a new single uh this saturday for record store day now what's the name of the single there's an a and a b side there's actually we're calling it side a and side one okay so yeah we're kind of putting the emphasis on both sides because we, we really like both songs so we're kind of having a 60s approach of a double-sided single basically so uh one song is called begin again and the other song is called standing still now tell me a little bit about the songs themselves um what uh, inspired them what are they ballads are the mid-tempo are they upbeat um what do they uh, sound like the first one is Bill sings one, I sing one. The one that Bill sings is Begin Again. Um, just kind of basically about starting over and uh, just dealing with regrets and just moving on. Uh, the song I sing is uh, Standing Still, basically just about confronting a bad situation and looking at face face on and saying, okay, enough's enough. It's time to, to just move forward. Um, so that's, that's kind of... They're, they're, they're very typical Einstein sister songs, but they are also kind of elevated to the next level because of some people we worked with and some things that happened along the way. Um, and I think the songwriting has gotten better too. Um, you know, I, I, I've still kept involved with songwriting. Bill's still been working with some creative things. So it's not like we just stopped doing what we did. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, Bill and I will always have that kind of pick up where we left off attitude as far as being creative and writing. And, you know, we still play together. Um, so it wasn't like this total huge break between us. Um, so it was, it was a very easy thing to, to just kind of get back on the horse and start working together again. Now, um, for those people who haven't heard you guys before, I could easily say you sound like a combination of Limp Biscuit, Creed, and, and JoJo. <laughs> Yeah, and Jojo yeah, Sliwa, right. especially <laughs> lately with Jojo Sliwa influences. But tell tell people a little bit about what you what you sound like aside from Jojo Sliwa and Creed. Okay, got it. Yeah, I would say that well, I, Cheap Trick would be 
a, a big influence, obviously, because they were, I kind of called them the first generation of, of Beatle influence, and we would be more of a second generation of uh-huh. Beatle influence with the additional influence of a band like Cheap Trick and uh-huh. their Midwest influence. Um, but, you know, the typical thing, obviously, with the Beatles, obviously, is the huge inspiration for us. Um, but along the lines, that second wave of Beatle influence, so Crowded House, Jellyfish, The Posies, um, XTC, so so bands that would, you know, fit in that that group as well, and obviously Cheap Trick as, as well. So that's along the lines of what we, what we did. So, how much did Brad Harvey pay you to mention Cheap Trick that many times? And... <laughs> uh, Brad has, has not paid me any money at all, so we're good there. <laughs> Brad, Brad is mean, a I mean, major Cheap a, Trick a fan. I mean, I mean... But who I mean, isn't? Cheap Trick is fantastic. And, and just the fact that they accomplished what they did as a Midwest band, and the fact that they're still going, the fact that they've... You know they've stuck to their guns and have, have just done what it is that they do so well. Right. Um, it's an amazing career. It's a, it's yeah. a stellar career. Well, um, they're such an underrated band. I mean, you listen to their albums, and they're especially the first like half dozen or so albums are just right. phenomenal, just phenomenal. Yeah. In color and in black and white is one of my favorite albums of all time. Just yeah. absolutely amazing work, and they're they're criminally underappreciated by most. Most people. Right. But you know who they're not underappreciated by is other musicians. Yes. I mean, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins, Foo Fighters, I mean, Kiss, guys. I mean, those other musicians will just sing their praises day in and day out. So Now, you guys, you know, you worked with a, a lot of big names in a lot of big places for this single. And that's kind of, you know, um, what is really buzzing about it. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you guys, you know, you had connections to Abbey Road, RAK Studios, and, you know, tell us about some of the connections that, uh, some of the big name connections that are tied in with this new single. Okay. Well, there's primarily four gentlemen that really helped us out. Um, the two that helped us with the actual recording, one is Tim Smith, who was a member of Jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen Cheryl Crow over the last 20 years, Tim has been her bass player. And uh, he's a phenomenal vocalist and a great arranger, a great vocal arranger. Um, he did all the backing vocals on both tracks. We sent the tracks to him down in Atlanta, and he just did this almost like 10cc-ish kind of just avalanche of backing vocals for us on on both tracks. Just stellar. I mean, absolutely just amazing stuff. So we're really grateful to, you know, I mean, just the fact that we have a jellyfish guy on on our record is pretty stellar. Right. Um, And he just was such a gentleman and, and just so nice and polite and just so willing to help us out. So that was very kind. Um... A session guitar player by the name of Vinny Zumu, who is a New York guy. Um, he's played with like Art Garfunkel and Sean Colvin and just uh, tons of people out in, out in the East Coast. But uh, I called him because he played with Joe Jackson in the 80s. He mm-hmm. actually played the guitar solo on You Can't Get What You Want Till You Know What You Want, which is one of my just favorite guitar solos. His guitar work on that entire album is stellar. And he's an incredibly versatile player. And 
and I gave him the track, and he immediately just zoned in on this George Harrison thing, which was just perfect for the song. Um, so he played on it. He's only on one tune. Tim's on both songs. Um, but the big thing that really came in was originally I had asked uh, somebody to help me write this one of the songs, and it just didn't work out for a number of reasons. But it was going to be a kind of a game changer for us, mm -hmm. and I knew I needed somebody to help me mix this tune um, because I, I was going to be stepping up to a, a definitely more professional level. And I called a guy named Nick Davis, who has mixed uh, a lot of Genesis stuff. He did the last Genesis record. He recorded and mixed that, um, which was the We Can't Dance record. I should say the last album was Phil Collins. Uh -huh. um, and then he's done Mike and the Mechanics. He did the Living Years album and the single. Um, he's worked with AHA, and he's worked with Marillion, and just a, a ton of bands in England. Um, but he did XTC, he did the last few XTC records, and he did an album called Nonsuch, which was kind of our reference album in Einstein Sister. We always brought this album into the studio when we were mixing and said, you know, to Tom Tabman at Catamount, like, this is what we want our album to sound like. Um, and so I contacted Nick in England, and Nick didn't automatically agree to do this. He wanted to hear us first, and he wanted some time to think about it, uh, which I really appreciated that he just didn't want to do it for the money, you know, that it's like, okay, here's my fee and blah, blah, blah. Um, he, he just, he wanted to check us out and make sure that we were, you know, worth his time and that kind of thing. So Nick, uh, after a week or so, got back to me and said, yeah, I like what you guys do. I will do this. Um, and we, we agreed on a studio at the time. And then just a number of things happened. Um, I had surgery. He broke his arm. Uh, there were some other medical issues with family members, and it took a while. And by the time we actually got to the mix, that first studio didn't work out, and he started um, – talking to people where he was mixing. He was working on a, uh, a kind of a side project for one of the Pink Floyd guys uh -huh. and was using RAC or RAK Studios in London. And that is a, a really, really, if you live in London, everybody knows about the studios where Radiohead did the bends. Um, Steve Lillowey did a, a ton of singles there in the 80s, like in a big country mm -hmm. was recorded there. Um, one of my favorite singles of all time, When Love Breaks Down by Prefab Sprout, was recorded mm -hmm. there. Harry Styles records there. Uh, Adele is there right now, apparently, working on some new material. Um, so it's just this classic British studio, and it's right down the street from Abbey Road. So when Nick finished mixing, he contacted me and asked me if... Uh, I had anybody in mind for mastering, which is kind of the final process of the recording stages. And I said, oh, I got a couple guys, you know, in the States that I've used for things. And he's like, well, I got a friend down the street. Um, I think I'm going to run these tracks down and play them for him. And little did I know that he was actually running it down to Abbey Road and played it for a guy named Miles Showell. Um, Miles is kind of Paul McCartney's go-to guy. Uh -huh. um, Miles has done a lot of stuff for Beatle remasters. He did the Queen box set on vinyl. He's done the Stones box sets. Um, Cream, The Police. I mean, he's he's uh, he is the guy at Abbey Road. He is the vinyl guy. And so 
So he remastered or he mastered our single for us. Um, got us a really nice deal as a favor to Nick and as a favor to us. Um, because I mean, his his rate is top notch, and there was no way I don't think we could afford him just you know on the street kind of deal. But as a favor to Nick, he agreed to to cut us an, uh, a, a, a good deal. I mean, we still we still paid for it, no question there. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, but it's Abbey Road. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, we're not. It's not like Jim's studio in East Moline or something. You know. <laughs> hey, um, don't mess yeah. with Jim's studio. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work. I'm, re- I I I'm recording my it. album with JoJo Sliwa there, and I refuse to be insulted. Yeah, so, right. Um, so, but yeah, so we ended up having that. Well, then the problem was, is after right after we got this beautiful mastering job by Miles, um, we had to get what's called the lacquer cut, which is where they take a black... Uh, blank lacquer and they they cut it to make the stamper to make the records and uh, there was a lacquer fire in California and so all the lacquers are gone and I talked to Miles and I said we're in a bit of a pinch where there's no lacquers here in the states they're all gone they're waiting for a boat from Japan and this is right before the virus kicked in so now I don't even know if that boat made it here and uh, Miles said well let me let me talk to some people here at the we come up with and they they got us two lacquers and miles ended up cutting our single on the exact same table where he's cut beetle records and stones records and mccartney records and uh so we actually got our record cut on the same table at abbey studios where some absolutely you know game-changing records have been cut so yeah it, it, it was, i mean when that whole thing was going down this was earlier this year um I would just wake up in the morning and just, you know, just like, there's no way this is happening. There's no way I'm getting files from Abbey Road Studios and having to approve these files, you know? It's like, this is just insanity. So, um, and I mean, there's a reason these guys are top notch. When you hear this single, you'll understand that, I mean, there's a reason they get paid big bucks and they do what they do because they are really, really, really good at what they do. So, so how, what was that like? Was it intimidating at all? Or did you look back on it and you go, oh man, if, if I wish I would have done this or this with the song, or I wish I would have like, what was it like being, you know, working with these guys and, you know, have, being on that same level as a Paul McCartney, as, you know, as Radiohead, as, as you know, um, Genesis, a lot of these bands, and being, you know, having your song heard and, I don't want to say judged, but kind of, you know, um, going through the same process and being sort of, you know, digested by these people that, that have worked with such tremendous names in the music business. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I think where I got eased into that was working with Nick because Nick, uh, once he agreed to mix this, he was really, um, how do I want to say this? He kind of was maternal over the process. So as I was recording tracks, I would send things to him and he would make comments to me and was incredibly helpful. Um, Without a question, Nick is the reason this single exists because he was such a a guide during the entire process. He has no idea how much he helped me during this. Um, So 
that really eased things for me. And after a while, I forgot that he's the guy that, you know, sits in the studio with Phil Collins every day for a year and makes an album. Um, and it just was, okay, this is my friend Nick who's giving me advice on how to make a, that guitar sound better or how to make that vocal go better. One of the things that was really weird is I was really nervous about cutting my vocal. I was absolutely terrified because I'm going to be cutting a vocal, I'm going to be singing, and he's used to hearing, you know, some of the best pop vocalists on the planet. And I was just absolutely terrified. Here I am in my basement getting ready to record this vocal. And what I had done is I had actually cut a vocal a couple weeks beforehand as a guide vocal mm -hmm. for uh, a guitar player that, at that time that was going to help us out. And I came home really late one night. I was incredibly tired, and I needed to cut the vocal. And I just came down here and cut it like at 2 in the morning, did like one or two passes. But that vocal's got character to it. Uh -huh. And Nick heard it and said, you know, there's really nothing wrong with this vocal that you this guide vocal you cut, um, I think we're good with this. And I was like, oh, thank God, you know, <laughs> I, had to go and, <laughs> I had to go do this high pressure vocal. Um, and I was so relieved, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that Nick would, would do is just say, okay, this is, this has got character. This is good. Um, I like this, you know, it mm -hmm. may not be technically perfect, but it's, it's, it's got, got warmth to it and it's got a personality and I think this is good and I can make this sound really nice so don't worry about that or don't worry about this this small technical thing when I get to the mixing stage I will be able to you know take care of some of these things that you're concerned about and he did he, he just made it sound unbelievably great so now is that the element of your musicianship that you are the most insecure about, given the fact that you write songs, um, you obviously you know play guitar, you can play multiple instruments, and you also sing. Um, do you feel more secure in regard to? I, hey, I know I'm I, I can put together a fantastic song. I know that I can put um, together great melodies and counter melodies and. Um, I know that I can play the guitar very well, but my my singing, there's so many different nuances to singing, and there are so many different technicalities and just um, nuances to it in regard to character and emotion that it's it's by far one of the most, more subjective means of expression in regard to music. And is that is that something yeah. that, because you look at, you know, you can look at, um, there are so many guitarists that are technically adept, and you can say, oh, they're, they're fantastic technically, but, the, you know, there's a certain character to, to vocalists that seems to really impact with people. And sometimes the most technically proficient vocalists come across as the most sterile, whereas those that are not, that have something of more of a character and more of a, a distinct individuality to their, their sound, are the ones yeah. that resonate the most. Right, right. Like, like Neil Young's a good example yes, of that. Yes, precisely. Uh, technically a brilliant guitar player, but has got a personality, mm -hmm. and you know it's him when you hear him. Right. And that's, that's just our, you know, that's just such a great thing to have, is just that trademark. Um, I, uh, I'm not comfortable singing. I'm not. I don't consider myself to be a very solid vocalist. Bill, on the other hand, I think is a very good yes, vocalist. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and Bill's comfortable with it. I 
I like being kind of the guy behind the scenes. I like, you know, recording tracks. I, I don't have a problem writing. Um, again, I have a problem with lyrics mm-hmm. because I don't like being that guy that exposes emotions and thoughts and things like that. I'm not comfortable with that. Where Bill just, it's very natural for him to do that. Um, so I'm kind of the guy behind the board and, and Bill's kind of more of the, the emotional content of the, of the two of us, you know. Um, and that, I think that's one of the reasons why this partnership works well. Bill's good with lyrics. Mm-hmm. I think that's why this this partnership's worked as well as as long as it has. What what was it like putting the songs together? Um, how how you know we were talking about um, before we started recording the songwriting processes of different musicians. What is your songwriting process like, and and how does it compare and contrast and complement Bill's? The the early days it w- was us sitting down together at a table and I have this melody and it was definitely, you know, because we were kids and we had right. time together and we could sit down and, and, you know, actually take the time to actually work on it. Now, like with this, um, a lot of times what I do is I send them what I call dummy lyrics mm-hmm. and I'll just give them the vibe of the song and say, okay, here's kind of the tempo of the song. Here's, here's a similar sounding song. And then I'll just send them a, like a blueprint of the lyric. And sometimes I'll get a germ of an idea and say, hey, I really like what I came up with on this one line. And then Bill is really good at, at filling in the blanks at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bill can take that one or two sentence idea that I have and then he can just basically run with that. Um, he's really good at doing that, which I, I would never be able to do that. Um, so that's pretty much how it goes. And then he'll he'll email me back what he's got and I'll say, I like this, I like this, this is a little weird for me to sing, this doesn't fit so well. Could you change this line possibly and, and you know, you'll understand once you come here and you have to sing it, it'll make more sense. And then he'll again, he just within like a minute he'll he'll make an adjustment and it's great. So mm-hmm. Um, it, is this going to be anything of a springboard towards maybe a new Einstein sister album? I don't think, I'll put it this way, this took three years. For <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So if, if you're holding your breath for an album, uh, we'll probably be, you know, <laughs> it'll probably be probably 2030 by the time that's ready to rock. <laughs> um, I don't think we'll be ready for another album, but I will say this with the doors that have opened and the friendships we've made and the connections we've made. Um, and granted we've had some serious obstacles along the path and with some health things and stuff like that. But now knowing that we can do this and with the caliber of people that we've met along the way, I could definitely see us doing this again next year. Are there going to be, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, as far as the single is concerned. So, yeah. Now, are there going to be any reunion gigs uh, in conjunction with the release of the single? Well, we would have definitely, you know, we did a reunion gig for Learning Curves three years ago. Um, I, I thought there'd be like 30 people there, and it did, it did really well. Right. Um, and we were really hoping to do something for this, but obviously we just... With COVID, yeah, right. Yeah, so... Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, record survey is, is 
Sunday or Saturday, uh, maybe Bill and I might be hanging out at, at co-op, you know, just seeing how the seeing how the record's selling. Maybe that might be the closest to reunion as we're gonna get. Right so. now, um, who performed on the album? Which band permutation uh, are we gonna hear on the? Uh, or not okay. uh, not the album, the single. Sorry. The single. It's it's the same lineup that we've had um, with Andy on bass. Marty Brands on drums and Andy Brock on bass, and then me and Bill. Uh, Steve Volk moved to Des Moines many years ago, and he's just really tied up with his, his gig in Des Moines. Uh, wasn't able to make it back for the reunion, and I notified him about taking. You know, I told him that there was something big kind of coming up, and I just didn't. Re- I could tell he wasn't just really into doing anything, so we just kind of moved on without him. Uh, without it being a performance thing and being a recording thing, um, obviously I was able to pick up the slack on guitar and, and take care of that. So if it's any consolation, I played like Steve, you know, kind of kind of just emulate his style a little bit on some of the rhythm tracks. So I, he was here in spirit. So, <laughs> so um, tell really quick history of the group um for people who again who are maybe are not familiar we'll have you on the podcast again uh we talked a little bit more in depth about some of it because you've been involved in so many interesting and intriguing behind the scenes stuff you've had for a long time you um did a lot of backing music for a lot of shows on mtv which a lot of people were not aware of um road road rules and shows like that you were doing the background music from you know your house in moline and um uh, let's talk a little bit about you know Einstein startup. It was around the mid '80s. You and Bill met. How did you guys meet? And did you, when you first met, did you hit it off, or did you like hate each other and then got to know each other? Um, the way Bill and I met is we had like eight mutual friends. All of my best friends lived in Bill's neighborhood, mm-hmm. and they all talked about Bill, but I didn't know Bill. That was like the, he was like the one of two. Friendship, like the one guy did not know, and I, I remember like going to people's houses and they would have an album there, and I'm like, "Can I borrow this record? I've been wanting to hear it." Well, I borrowed it from Bill Douglas, you mm-hmm. know. So it was just like he was always at their house, even though he wasn't there, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then finally, I think we just kind of met up and started talking, and I think I made him a, a squeeze tape, and we just kind of hung out, and then I was playing in a band in a cover band and he him and a mutual friend came down to practice and I was just it was just one of those practices where I was bitching at the other guys about writing original material but I didn't want to write lyrics and Bill overheard the conversation and talked to me after practice and said you know I dabble in poetry and stuff like that I could probably help you out and uh, stopped by that night dropped off some books and I just looked at the lyrics and went okay this can work and that's kind of pretty much how the whole thing started. Now, um, the first album uh, came about through is primarily um, from demos that you and Bill had had done as a duo, right. correct? Yeah, that was like the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, those are basically basement demos. Mm-hmm. Um, we sold the tape at gigs, and then with the money we made from the tape, we then took those tracks. We kept recording basically. And then took those tracks to Catamount Recording Studios in Cedar Falls. And then Tom, uh, Tom Tapman took my demos, basically, and then threw them up on steroids, essentially. Um, really sweetened them up and then made a CD of them, um, which 
you know, at the time, not a lot of bands were making CDs. Right. I mean, obviously, Lynn Allen had some CDs out, and there was maybe one or two other bands. Um, so it was kind of yeah. mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then the second album, Oceanus, you were signed to um, to an indie label. Yeah. So let's talk. Yeah, that didn't go so well. Right. Let's talk. But, but but it led to what I consider, you know, maybe the greatest local album ever recorded. So let's talk a little Oceanus. You went up to uh, Minneapolis and you had signed right. to Orphan Records. And, right. um, and yeah, you did not have a, an, ex, an exceptionally positive experience recording that no. record. No. No, it didn't go well. Um, I, in particular, did not get along. We were signed to producer... Um, we not enough time to get into why that didn't go well, but him and I definitely clashed. And he had one vision for the record. I had a completely different version of how I thought the record should sound, and uh, led to some arguments and a lot of uh, just a lot of confusion. And uh, yeah, it was just it was messy. Um, and I was pretty upset. We ended up in some serious debt because of the record too which mm. definitely hurt things um, and so my revenge and talking to Bill he agreed was basically to come back and make the best possible record we could and so Bill and I sat down and made kind of a master plan and that was to make this album Learning Curves uh, and make the album that we knew we could make mm-hmm. and so we went back to Catamount Cedar Falls and just basically just took the bull by the horns and made the record we wanted to make. So Learning Curves was, you know, I always kind of bitch about Oceanus and what a nightmare it was, and Bill, being the optimist that he is, always reminds me that had we not gone through Oceanus, then we wouldn't have come back fighting so much, you know, to make Learning Curves. So I guess he's got a point, but (laughs) (laughs) I can tell tell you that. Right. Yeah, those Learning Curves, it... If anyone out there is listening has not heard Learning Curves, I so highly recommend that you go out and get it. And you know, I know that a lot of the tracks are on. You can listen to them on YouTube. Just kind of sample them and see. But Learning Curves is just absolutely brilliant. And I'm not just saying that because Carrie and Bill and I are friends and and they're a local band. I'm saying it because honestly, that was my pick for the number one album of the year when it came out, and I was being completely sincere. And it's just an absolutely fantastic record. That is Thank one of you. my favorite That's records. Um, and then, then you came out with a follow-up album, which is also a fantastic record, Humble Creatures. Yeah. And talk yeah. a little bit about that. Um, Humble Creatures is a deliberate attempt not to make Learning Curves Part 2. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we tried a little too hard, um, but I, I'm still very proud of that record. I think mm-hmm. it's a solid album. Um, but, you know, we... we kind of felt the need to follow up learning curves pretty quick because we were getting so much attention um maybe it might not have been a bad idea in retrospect to maybe wait another six eight months before we we kind of jumped on it um but again i think it's a it's a solid record um one of the things that we did do is around that time we were starting to get a lot of tv action so when we made that album we did an instrumental mix of the album and that's what really opened the doors for the the mtv stuff and you know the 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 HB 
Scorpio and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so having an, an entire instrumental album for television people was uh, a really good move because it basically paid for the album to be recorded and wiped out our debt from Oceanus and kind of bought me a little studio down here. So it turned out to be a really good move financially. Um, but I, 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 and I've had a lot of people tell me too that they like the album just as well as Learning Curve. Some mm-hmm. people actually like it better. Um, but it, I think it's, I think it's, it's held up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you also uh, got a lot of attention playing uh, International Pop Overthrow, which was a, a huge, huge power pop festival uh, in Los Angeles, and they've had them in Chicago as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, that was around the time of Learning Curves. We got invited by, uh, we call him Lord David Bash. <laughs> he has these festivals every year, obviously not this year, but he has them in Chicago, Nashville, Liverpool, London. Um, New York, um, I think he, I think he was doing them in Nashville, if I'm not mistaken. Um, basically, it's like a two-week power pop music festival. Um, Bill and I have done the Chicago one countless times, but we were going out as a band and doing the ones in Los Angeles. And uh, that, like I said, that was right when Learning Curves came out, so that was like late '90s, early 2000s. Um, just. But, you know, what a way to experience Los Angeles is to go to a different music club every night and just see bands that do exactly what you're doing, except they're from Madrid and from, you know, Munich and Australia and just to, to make this incredible community of power pop musicians. Um, Bill and I met, I mean, I met Doug Figer from The Knack. We met Brian Wilson. Um, John Cowsell, I mean, just power pop geek heaven, basically, um, and really opened the doors. We met a lot of writers, a lot of journalists. Um, it just turned out to be a, just a wonderful experience. Um, the big thing for us is we got to play at the Troubadour, which, you know, Elton John, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, uh, you know. The Doors, I mean, yeah. it's just legendary club, so we actually got to play on that stage. So it, that was worth it right there, that's for sure. So. Now, how, mu- how much did the, the connections made through those various um, shows and, and the folks you met lead to this current single and opening any of the doors that eventually led to, to the people that you worked with currently? Actually, none of that had anything to do with, with what's happening right now um, because it's been so long. I mean, it's been... That was 20 years ago. Um, we're still great friends with with all of those guys. And, and like I said, Bill and I will go up to Chicago and do the festival. Um, everything that's happened on this round is basically me getting on the Internet and finding people and um, just having this attitude of it doesn't hurt to ask. Right. And I, I guess if I have any advice to any musicians out there right now that are, are in the same boat that of what we're doing, um, it is exactly that. It just doesn't hurt to ask. Um, you would be amazed at people who will respond. I think a lot of musicians know that already because of Facebook and just social media. But just, you know, finding an email address and just being a gentleman or a gentlewoman and saying, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I, I, I'm in this situation. I'm in a band. And, 
is there a possibility? Would you possibly consider this? I would like, you know, I'd like to send you my work so you could review it and see what you think. Is this, you know, what would you charge me? What kind of time are we looking at? Um, you would be amazed. Um, I think with the climate of the music industry right now, a lot of people that we really respect that we think and assume are just, you know, off the grid or off the chart are actually are actually obtainable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let's say you love Alice Cooper and and you think that his guitar player is phenomenal and you think that there's absolutely no way you could ever get them to perform on your record, you would be amazed. You know, it's worth an email. It's worth a shot. And, and yeah. the way I look at it is they could either ignore me, they could say no, or they could say yes. Mm-hmm. And I did send out an awful lot of emails over these last three years. And it's exactly what it got. Three, one of three responses: either nothing, or I'm sorry, I can't help you, or yeah, this sounds interesting. Why don't you send me what you have, and I'll listen to it. And if I like what you guys do, we'll talk about how to do this and how to make it happen. So, so um, after Humble Creatures, how long? What? When did Einstein's kind of go on hiatus? And tell us, like, recap. I mean, you and Bill really never stopped playing together it just the band kind of came and went um tell us about how that happened and the last you know two decades or so that you know that's been going on well we had this this best stuff come out um that came out overseas and so we did a couple new songs for that um that came out in the early 2000s and that was kind of the last recordings that we had done um we never officially said this is it um i keep thinking about when i saw the last who tour in 1982 you know and it's like uh-huh. uh, i mean they've done more reunion tours than they've done actual tour tours when you think about it uh-huh. um and we didn't want to be that band that said okay we're never playing together again this is it this is the final show um because we knew that a we all got along you know we all talked to each other we're all still great friends with the exception of steve living a distance um we all see each other quite a bit from time you know from time to time not right. every day or anything um and you know when ripco had their their anniversary thing obviously we were asked to do that and we were thrilled to be a part of it um we've had unfortunately some benefit gigs where we've been asked to play and of course we would say yes to those um so yeah i mean the band has just kind of has always just kind of been lurking in, in the mist a little bit um and like i said when the opportunity to do learning curves on vinyl came up um when i guess that was three years ago it was right around the 20th anniversary of the release of the album and it's like well you know everybody's doing vinyl and i've had a lot of people ask me about doing this and i've got the tapes here and we could we could put together a pretty nice little package with a you know some demos and a live show and do a colored vinyl and and um you know like i said when we did it we said okay if we do this we got to do a gig and everybody was on board so that's kind of where this band has been like i said we never said this is it we're never doing this again we just kind of said let's just not do this and do other things um marty's had that approach with trip master you know they've never said this is the final show or anything like that um and that's kind of that's worked out for us as well so Mm -hmm. well yeah it was really more of a case of life intervening with as with so many other things yeah you know yeah exactly i mean we all had you know babies and marriage and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and that that just factors into it 
Well, and you and Bill still play gigs as, you know, Douglas and Tucker, and yeah, you sure. still do premium sellout shows and, and things like that, so. Uh, that's, that's pretty much over with. We haven't done oh, you're that not for doing a while. That okay. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, Bill and I still do Douglas and Tucker gigs, and, you know, if you're at some nice dinner club outside, we're out in the patio playing, you know, Eagle songs and whatever, and um, Bill and I still love playing, and, and, you know, we've been doing it a long time, and, um it's just part of our DNA. It's what we do. And, it, you know, it helps pay for stuff. When we had to pay for some sessions here and there, we needed some money. Obviously, the band's not playing gigs. So it's right. like, well, let's do some acoustic gigs and we'll, we'll put the money in the kettle and try to, to raise some money to get some of the stuff taken care of. So that's how we did it. So, so um, wrapping things up, what was it like when you finally got the single, when you finally got this in your hand and you heard the final product for the first time, you heard it, this this thing that you created actualized and having gone through all of these other talented people's hands and all of you together had, br- had come together to create this new thing which didn't exist in the world before and you're sitting there experiencing it for the first time. What was that like? It was pretty, it was pretty mind-boggling. The, the first time that... Um, was really when it came together for me when because you know here he is in this beautiful studio in london and here's this world-class mix engineer um the two things that really that really gelled for me is one is that nick literally read my mind on these mixes like everything i was hoping he would get he nailed it so that told me that he was him and i were on the exact same page the whole time um you know he didn't like like auto-tune on me or something you know what right. I mean like he didn't he didn't hear some dance version of this or something <laughs> um, he, he it was like where I wanted this guitar placed he knew exactly where to put it and he knew when to bring this vocal up and stuff so that tells me that I I felt good that I picked the perfect guy for this mm-hmm. um, and that he got what we did and that made me feel so good about that I sent him very very let him do what he did best and he nailed it he just nailed it um so getting back to your question what nick's mix was was basically me hearing what i heard in my head and it was amazing because it's like that's your goal when you tell somebody to mix something is here's the way i hear it in my head here's the way i want to hear it out of my speakers and nick nailed it and that is just that, that doesn't happen a lot. And to have him, you know, six hours away, and he's getting ready to go to bed, and I'm getting ready to eat dinner, you know? And it's like, <laughs> wow, this is insanity. Like, he read my musical mind and just perfected it, and that's exactly what is coming out of my speakers right now. Um, so it gave me a sense of, like... Oh my gosh! He this is the this is the guy. There's I don't know if there's anybody else on the planet that would have gotten it any closer than what he did. Um, but the real the real oh my god moment was the mastering from Abbey Road. Um, it just has this bass. It just has this Beatle bass to it. Um, 
even the vinyl, especially the vinyl has it, where it just has this warm, kind of swampy, McCartney-ish, kind of Abbey Road album base to it. Um, the CD does the same thing. It's got like this subsonic low bass, and it's just in the mastering. It's something about the tubes and that that building, I don't know what it is, but um, it just took me back to hearing a Beatle record for the first time, and it was, it just, like, made the hair of my arm stand up. Well, and you folks listening out there can also have that experience as well. Um, the single is coming out this coming Saturday, correct? At record, yes. yeah. Um, for record store day, you can buy it. It's going to be available at Co-op locally. Um, I'm st- we just got the jacket, so I'm really still putting stuff together, but I know that iTunes, uh, Discogs, uh, Apple Music will have it, um, Bandcamp, just, you know, the traditional places where you download music, where you can buy music online, those places should all have it by Saturday. If not, they'll have it soon, I promise. But locally, it's exclusively at Co-op Records in Moline. Uh, yes, for Record Store Day, for Saturday and beyond Saturday, obviously. And the name of the songs again? Um, Begin Again and Standing Still. And I will tell you that when you buy the record, um, it's on a clear blue vinyl. Um, It comes with a lyric sheet and a a credits thank you sheet. There's a download card that has instrumental versions of the songs as well. And there's also a four-track CD that comes with the single. And it is billed as Einstein's Sister. It is an Einstein's Sister single, yes. Very cool. Um, Carrie, I'm very much looking forward to picking that up. And Thank you. Folks out there, definitely, definitely, definitely get a copy of this record. It is fantastic. And, again, Einstein Sister, tremendous band. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity. Anything else you want to add before we sign off? No. <laughs> well thanks so much for being on the show sure and thank you very much for listening to qc uncut uncut unedited uncensored conversation with local newsmakers my guest again today is carrie tucker from Einstein's sister they're going to have a brand new single like double a-sided single begin again standing still coming out on clear blue vinyl cd um this coming saturday at co-op records in moline for um record release day and um again check that out fantastic band highly 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 recommend them uh thanks again to carrie tucker and thank you for listening to qc uncut i'm sean leary have a great day